Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I'm passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. Ah, these are some of my all-time favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. We have a wide variety of courses at Israel Bible Center, with new ones being released each month, including a course called Psalms, a Songbook for the Ages. The author of this course is Dr. Drew Longacre, and he is a guest lecturer here at Israel Bible Center. Otherwise, he's a visual exegete at Cambridge Digital Bible Research. And if you don't know what that is, don't worry. We will cover that exciting development next week. And for a sneak peek, check out the links in the notes for this episode. For now, I sat down with Dr. Longacre to find out more about what his context was like growing up and how it was that he was drawn towards studying the Psalms. Lean in and enjoy the conversation. Yeah, so my parents were Christian believers uh, from a young age, as far as back as I can remember, they were um, following the Lord and encouraging us to to learn and grow. We did uh, Awana programs and things like this. So studying the scriptures and walking a a walk of faith was something that was a part of my life from an early period. Um, I was planning on going into the Air Force, going to go to the Air Force Academy, and then ended up getting at the last minute medically disqualified. And at that point, the Lord just kind of redirected and said, okay, you've been making your own plans, and now uh, you're going to have to figure something else out. I've got something different planned for you. And at that point, I started feeling called to go into more full-time Christian ministry. And uh, I didn't know where I was going to go, what I was going to do, but I figured I really like languages. So no matter what I would do in the future, the languages would help. So I just went to the university, studied biblical languages. And then from there, it just became clearer and clearer where my areas of interest and expertise lay and where I could most make a contribution so and i just kind of kept learning and kept researching and growing uh, took me to a seminary i figured i would probably end up teaching pastors at some point so i wanted to have a, a background there and then went off to do research in europe went to the university of birmingham and studied the dead sea scrolls and then since then yeah i have been doing research all over the world in England and Finland, the Netherlands, Israel, um, and now based back in the States. What is it that took you into the book of Psalms in particular? So the book of Psalms really started as a result of my most recent big project in the Netherlands. uh, And it's a, a project where we're studying the Dead Sea Scrolls, the actual handwriting and the scribes who produced these scrolls. Um, So it was a really interesting project. I gained a lot of experience and expertise working with material artifacts. So books that are actually like 
tangible rather than just um, the literary idea of a text. Uh, and that that got me started down this route. But one of the things we wanted to do is say, once we've studied the manuscripts and the scribes, what does that mean for the understanding of the literature? So my task, my sub-project was to take one book of the Bible, basically, and apply all this research and see how does it change the way we uh, see the history of the book. And the Psalms was really a perfect example for this because we have so many manuscripts in the Dead Sea Scrolls and there are so many different shapes and sizes by so many different people. Um, and we also, there's a, a lot of diversity in which Psalms are included and in which order. So there was a lot of uh, challenging questions trying to interpret what does that manuscript evidence mean for understanding what the Psalter is. And you have a new book coming out, right? Is that also a result of that research you were doing? Yeah, exactly. That's the the main scholarly contribution from that. The idea, again, that we take all this research on the manuscripts and the scribes who produce these psalm scrolls and say, what does that mean for understanding each of the psalm scrolls? And then how does that fit into the bigger picture of the psalms as they were written, as they were collected, as they were copied over time, and as they were reused in many different contexts in that period. So I'd be curious, since you were looking at the the actual scrolls themselves, I'd be curious just about the format of these songs. Because in some of the translations that we use, we format it line by line so it looks like poetry. But that's not always the case when you're looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls. So how can you tell what it is that you are reading? What are the markers of Hebrew poetry that would be different than, say, if you're reading a manuscript that is full of narrative? Yeah. So the thing is, there's not always a clear standard. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have some psalm scrolls where it's just a running text and it just kind of just like a normal English text or a prose text where there's no division. But we have other um, manuscripts where they do. Every um, half a line, basically, they will break and put a blank space. So you'll actually see a gap physically in the manuscript there, which indicates where that scribe thought you should pause and break apart these poetic lines. I mean, that's with Hebrew poetry, that's one of the essential elements, this parallelism, where you have two parts of a verse, which in some way relate to each other, um, but they're pronounced almost uh, with a pause between them that separates them yeah, so you have two lines that together form one thought. Some people have explained this poetic. And often in manuscripts, those will be marked with spaces between the spots. And what is the emotional aspect behind the Psalms that are so different from, again, some of the narrative texts? Hebrew poetry, it's really an interesting phenomenon in many ways. So we try to think of like what distinguishes psalms or poetry in general from prose and you know we, we already talked about the structure there's a certain structuring of these psalms where you have poetic lines where things are parallel to each other you have a lot of repetition almost where the two parts relate to each other you have a lot of structuring where you have like the beginning and end of the psalm will have the same kind of ideas or themes or words which will tie so there are many structural things which 
distinguished poetry, but you brought up emotions and that's a really big one. One of the, the great things about poetry is that it, it thrives on emotion. It encourages emotion. Whereas prose, you may have legal issues, which are, you know, intentionally emotionless. You may have narrative where, you know, you have a nice story, but generally the characters don't really emote all that much. And what you find is when they do emote, often they emote using poetry. So you see that in the Psalms and in other poetry, there's a certain appropriateness of this poetic form for expressing your emotion. And it's designed to bring out and help people to give words to their own emotions. So those are two big things that you see that distinguish poetry. And you use a lot of like imagery and metaphor more so than you would find in most prose texts. And another thing that I, I've come to appreciate a lot more is just the sound play. There's an aesthetics to it. There's a beauty to poetry that you don't get to the same degree in narrative. Every once in a while, you'll you'll read in a narrative and they call this place or this person such and such because of this event. And there, there's a there's a sound play there that connects those. And it's there's a kind of similar idea. But with poetry, as I've been reading the Psalms more recently, I think there is so much of this sound play where you get the same kind of sound repeated over and over, or there are connections or words that are completely different words um, in similar structural situations will sound alike or have um, you know, a similar set of consonants or a similar set of vowels. So I've been more and more impressed with how these people, they're creating poetry, even though it's emotion, even though it may feel raw, it's not unfiltered. They're just kind of blurting random stuff out. They have really taken the time to structure this carefully and to choose words that are beautiful and work together. They sound very nice. Sometimes if you just see the text and you're not used to hearing it, you can miss that kind of thing. And we miss it in translation. So once it's been translated into a different language, we're missing the repetition of Hebrew sounds, you know, as we're using you know, even when we go into English, translate into English, we might have words that have multiple syllables, where in Hebrew it only has one or two syllables, or, you know, and then we're, we're missing the rhythmic quality that shows up in the Hebrew. So it can really be a, a challenge for modern readers who are not reading the Hebrew to get at some of the beauty that you're just talking about that's in the poetry. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. I mean, one of the the good things about Hebrew poetry is that parallelism is one of the, the key components. And that actually you can often bring across relatively well in English or other languages, which is which is nice. We can get a little taste of what Hebrew poetry is looking like. But the actual sound play, obviously that can't really come across directly in translation, which is a problem. There is a, a movement in Bible translation to say, though, that the effect of a translation should try to match the effect of the genre in which the original text is written. So if it has this sort of um, alliteration, assonance, these sound plays, these repeated patterns, then we should maybe, as translators, think about trying to produce poetry in our translation that would have a similar kind of effect and help people realize this is actually something that's beautiful. It's not just words to be parsed for 
theology. It's something to be appreciated. It's such an interesting concept, right? Because now you're translating art instead of translating a wooden translation to get it as like precisely accurate to the Hebrew. And that is a, it's a different kind of approach that is a really beautiful approach. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's great value in it because what you realize is that actually in the original Hebrew text, the text is not written in kind of the most obvious, simple, clear way. The syntax is intentionally awkward and weird in order to create these structures. So just translating it literally often can miss a lot of things that are actually integral to why the words of the psalm were chosen in the first place. One interesting example you can you can see of these kinds of things is, or bringing it in translation, I mean, is that there have been some translations in English which will try to bring over the Psalms into English meter. Now, in Hebrew poetry, we don't really have a strict kind of metrical pattern where we have, you know, beats that follow a certain pattern of accented and unaccented symbols. It's not rigorously followed in Hebrew, but in some English poetic forms, it is. And people have translated the Psalms into standard English meter where it follows this da 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 or whatever metrical form that they're using. And it has a totally different feel in a, a good way. I mean, it may be sometimes you, you have to sacrifice a little bit on the meaning. And I, as a translator, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit hesitant to to sacrifice the the meaning for the aesthetics, but whenever you can bring across the beauty of it and still be faithful to the meaning, I think there's something to that. We should give you an example, right? Consider Psalm 1. You may be familiar with the opening of this psalm. It says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its seasons, and leaf does not wither. Now, listen to Dr. Longacre read the same psalm, which is translated into English meter. That man hath perfect blessedness, who walketh not astray, in counsel of ungodly men, nor stands in sinners' way, nor sitteth in the scorner's chair, but placeth his delight upon God's law and meditates on his law day and night. He shall be like a tree that grows near planted by a river, which in his seasons yields his fruit, and his leaf fadeth never. And all he doth shall prosper well, the wicked are not so, but like they are unto the chaff which wind drives to and fro. In judgment therefore shall not stand as such as ungodly are, nor in the assembly of the just shall wicked men appear. For why the way of godly men unto the Lord is known, whereas the way of wicked men shall quite be overthrown. So, just one example, you, you, it feels very different from <laughs> how we would normally experience Psalm 1. But the, the meaning, the essence of the meaning is there, and it still brings across some of the, the aesthetics of it. Yeah. 
That's so great because Psalm 1 is one of the psalms that you spend a decent amount of time on in your course. And so people can go and look at some of the other qualities of Psalm 1 that you're pulling out and just how different it is if you're doing a translation that is highlighting the artistic quality of the psalm. It, it is a, a much bigger challenge. And many translation teams now, they will have professional poets on the, the team, even if they don't understand the Hebrew, they will have some sort of professional poetry or people who are used to singing artists, basically, because that is an important part of it. Many people will talk about the, the King James. They like the King James version because it had this artistry to it. Um, and, it, and, you know, as us now reading after the fact, it's, it's hard to kind of know for sure what's going on with that. But there is, you know, there's something there to make something beautiful as well as just bringing across the meaning that's almost a part of the meaning yeah your class that you did for ibc is all on the psalter but i but you mentioned in the class and i kind of want to maybe highlight it for just a moment because we have all this other poetry in other parts of the bible so i'm thinking of like the Song of Moses and the Prayer of Hannah or the Song of Hannah. And there's just all of these old bits of Hebrew poetry that aren't in the Psalter. They're embedded into other parts of the Bible. So from your opinion, how would you say we approach those? Are those also technically Psalms or are they not Psalms unless they're put into the book of the Psalter? Well, in some traditions, they are put into the book of Psalter. The, those songs, the poetry of the Bible in later Christian tradition is all compiled and attached to the end of the Psalter. So you have all the, the songs basically in one. So if you look at um, Greek manuscripts, for instance, of the Psalter, those psalms will actually occur there as well. Um, yeah, I think there were certainly psalms and songs that um, ancient Israelites sang and valued and treasured that didn't end up in the Psalter. The Psalter is not an exhaustive collection. Um, it's a pretty big collection. It has a, a good, diverse selection of some of the most important of the, the classical psalms from Israel's heritage. But yeah, I think these kinds of things were not limited to the Psalter. So you do see them popping up in narratives. Um, so in some cases, you have like Psalm 18 also occurs in 2 Samuel. So it's the same Psalm that occurs twice. And scholars will debate like, did one draw from 2 Samuel or did 2 Samuel take it out of the Psalter? Or is it just a famous psalm and it happened to end up in two different places? Uh, in Chronicles, you see the same thing where there it's pretty clear the, the chronicler had the Psalter and he's taking the psalms out and rearranging them to create these new psalms, essentially. Certainly, this idea of poetry inside a narrative context is a key part of many narratives. And it adds color, it adds beauty, it adds a certain drama and elegance to the narrative events. I really like how in the class, you don't just talk about the different types of songs that are included in the Psalter, but, but you really talk about how the shape of the whole is itself telling you something. Can you share a little bit about the book as a whole taking us through a journey? And what is that all about? 
Well, I mean, I would say, first of all, it's a it's one of the more controversial questions in current Psalms studies. And I think a lot of people would take it much further than I would. Because I work in a manuscript context where there's so much diversity and people, ancient writers and users seem to have felt pretty free to use Psalms by themselves and to rearrange things and move things around. So I'm not entirely convinced that the arrangement is critical for understanding the meaning of the individual Psalms, but somebody at some point put these together and there, there is a reason why they did that. And sometimes it may be just as simple as one Psalm ends with a certain phrase or theme and the next Psalm begins. So they put them together, or maybe these Psalms have similar ideas or concepts or structures. So they're put together, or maybe these particular Psalms had the same sort of superscription. It was the same kind of genre of Psalm. There are many reasons why these were put together. And I don't think those necessarily add up to one overarching storyline but there are many people who do and you see things like the the majority of the beginning psalms tend to be laments they're sad they're complaining they're prayers for deliverance and towards the end of the psalter you have a lot more praise psalms so many people will say there's a certain movement as you go from the beginning to the end of the psalter that you're kind of supposed to transition from this kind of depressed, oppressed, um, mournful prayer into a recognition that God is a God who answers prayer and he loves to deliver his people and he's worthy of praise. Uh, you see a same kind of thing uh, in the early Psalms. There's um, a heavy emphasis on the human king. And yet in the later Psalms, you see an emphasis on the divine king. And many people will say, maybe there's this idea that, you know, the human king will always fail you. Um, therefore, we need to shift over to understanding God as the divine king. And I think there's there's always a, a nice story you can create from these kind of things. The problem is it doesn't really account for all the details. You know, you're going to find right. mentions of, you know, a divine king in the first half and you're going to find laments in the second half. It, right. it never quite All actually, the exceptions to the rules, right? Exactly. <laughs> if you're willing to kind of paint really broad brush, you can create these narratives and, you know, maybe it's possible that some of these narratives were in the mind of the people who actually pulled all of the Psalms together. It's hard to prove one way or the other. I tend not to overplay it just because uh, I think, you know, it can be easily overplayed, but it's worth considering for sure. Yeah. It's funny it, when I hear you talk about it, it sounds a little bit like when I am with people and I'm standing in a particular geographical area and people want to know is this the rock Peter touched? Is this the exact place? And I'm always like, it's this-ish, right? <laughs> like it's, it's this landscape for sure. <laughs> but exactly. I don't know about that one rock. And it, it sounds a little bit like you're, you're painting the same kind of picture. It's this, sort of, but yeah. don't hold too strongly on to the detailed particulars. My own understanding of the Psalter is that, you know, you have lots of individual Psalms and then people over time had collected them into smaller collections. And then these smaller collections were combined into a larger series of scrolls, essentially. So we have 
a, a five scroll, a five book Psalter that was put together. And at each point, people are making decisions about why to put it together. But it's not like one person at one time had a systematic um, explanation or reason for doing everything. So you can see general patterns, but I wouldn't want to overread it personally. Next week, we dip our toes into dangerous waters as we explore the value of those super uncomfortable psalms that make you squirm. They're called imprecatory psalms, you know, the ones that cry out for the destruction of your enemy. And Dr. Longacre introduces us to what a visual exegete does and how you can use this new technology to understand the psalms better. If you're a student of IBC and would like to dive into this class, you will find a direct link in the episode notes. And if you have not yet connected to the vast number of courses and the roundtable talks with experts from their fields, consider joining our growing international group of students. From the comfort of your home and at your own pace, you can take classes and within a year, earn a certificate in Jewish context and culture. Thank you, Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related.